Take your Bibles this morning and join me in the book of Colossians in the New Testament, the little book of Colossians chapter 2. The little community of Colossae was in a period of decline. There were many intellectuals who were living there, but because the major highway had been relocated, it began to pull population away from that little community. And in the midst of that vulnerability, the local Christian community of faith had become vulnerable to a variety of types of heresies and compromises on the gospel. And so Paul writes to them to try to help combat the syncretism that was taking place as they were reaching out into the various cultures around them and trying to integrate them into the orthodox faith of following Jesus. And so Paul writes to them to try to help clarify and to pull them out of the syncretism that was taking place. I invite you, if you will, to stand now that you're comfortable and follow along as I read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God's response to your sin. Our Father, in these moments together as we continue to worship you, would you speak to us by your still small voice and take us back to where the most amazing miracle in time and eternity transpired. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. You may be seated. You can go to just about anywhere in the world today, China, India, the Far East, the Middle East, Europe, North America, South America. And if in your traveling you see a particular symbol, it will evoke an expectation. If you see the symbol of a cross, you have the expectation that somewhere near that cross, you will likely find a group of followers of Jesus Christ. Why has this symbol become so universal regarding our faith in Christ? What is it about this simple symbol? Is it simply a glorification of suffering and tragedy that elicits from us some type of sympathy? Jesus was not the only one to be crucified. There were thousands of people who were crucified by the Romans. And yet as followers of Jesus, we believe that there is something unique, something quite unusual and indeed extraordinary that transpired at the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. 
What is it about the cross of Jesus Christ that focuses our attention and that is shared by believers all over the globe? You and I would not stop sinning and God would not stop loving. And so our sin and rejection of God climaxes in the rejection of God's only son, sending him to die as a common criminal on a Roman cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. And yet, while we would not stop sinning, God refuses to stop loving. And so God offers his only begotten son to die on the cross of Calvary and to experience the penalty that really is mine and yours, and the sinless Son of God becomes the Lamb of God, dying on the cross, shedding his innocent blood, atoning for your sin and my sin, and becoming our substitute. He takes upon himself our sin. And it is the cross of Jesus, the death of God's only Son, that is God's response to your sin. And Paul is trying to take the Colossian believers back to the death of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes our sin in many ways. One of the ways that it describes our sin is conflict. That our sin is conflict. Sin is like a battle. It's like a war in my heart between good and evil and right and wrong and light and darkness. And for many of us, for many years, we live lives of inner conflict, turmoil boiling up inside of us. Look again at verse 15 now in Colossians chapter 2. When he... Speaking of God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him speaking of Jesus. Verse 15 is military language. It's conflict language. And Paul is reaching from culture itself to provide a picture to the Colossian believers of what has happened in the death of Jesus Christ. The image comes from a Roman army returning from a victorious campaign. And as the word spreads of their entrance into the capital city of Rome, crowds begin to line the stone-cobbled streets. People begin to gather to see if their brother, their son, their husband, their father is going to return from the campaign or was he a casualty of the conflict. And as the crowds gather on the stone-cobbled streets of Rome, and as they're peering over those in front of them, they look and see first in that victory parade are the foot soldiers. The foot soldiers trampsing down the stone-cobble road with helmets and breastplates shining in the sun, swords thumping in their leather scabbards. Next behind them are the cavalry riding on top of their freshly groomed horses, maintaining the control of those powerful steeds that they would take into battle with them all over the Roman Empire. And as the excitement grows, peaking above all of the army 
is the Roman general himself. He's standing tall in his polished chariot, glaring over the crowd as if he himself is some type of deity to be worshipped. People begin to toss their garlands at him and shout cries of praise to the great victorious Roman general who has once again returned with all of the booty of war and all of the privileges of victory. Behind the victorious general are the gold and silver treasures, the exotic spices and rare jewels that they had captured from the conquered lands, all to be offered in tribute to the treasury of the great son of a god, Caesar himself. As the people ooh and ah at the riches their attention begins to turn to a gruesome sight, a scene of rebellious prisoners locked in crude cages. And the crowd begins to take their trash, yelling curses, throwing the trash at them, spitting on these criminals who foolishly dared to resist the power of the great Roman army. Last, behind the crude cages are dragged the new slaves. They trudge through the horse waste of the cavalry and the thrown trash of the crowd. They stumble through the cursing and the shame. Their shoulders are bent over in defeat. Their heads are bowed down in shame. They have been put on public display for all to witness their defeat and their humiliation. Look at verse 15 again. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. This is what Paul is saying that Jesus did to all of the evil forces in creation. He has put them on public display for all to witness their defeat and their humiliation. By Jesus' death, God conquers the evil forces. By Jesus' death, God conquers the evil forces, the powers of this present darkness from Ephesians 6.12 have been conquered by God through the death of Jesus. The enemy of our souls through his very best punch. But when he opened the gates of death to receive the Son of God, he thought that it was all over and the victory was his. He danced on the borrowed grave of Jesus. How premature could he have been? It may have been Friday, <laughs> but Sunday was coming. Sunday was coming. The resurrected Christ stripped evil of its power and put it on public display. He humiliated evil through the victory of the resurrection. Good and evil, 
right and wrong, light and darkness still struggle in this day and age in conflict. But a final day has been marked in history. A day in which time will end and the battle will stop. And on that great and fearful day of the Lord, all of creation will recognize that by Jesus' death, God conquers the evil forces. That is God's response to your sin and to my sin and to the conflict that rages inside of us. His response is the giving of his only son. The Bible describes sin not only as conflict, but the Bible also describes sin as a debt. A debt. My sin is like a debt that I owe God. Look at verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. Verse 15 is military language, conflict language. Verse 14 is business language, accounting language, legal language. Notice how Paul describes the debt as decrees that are contrary to us, hostile to us, doing violence to our well-being, seeking to destroy us. It's as if we are in a championship sumo wrestling match and we are the ones that are being pinned to the mat. Now this isn't like just any other type of debt that we owe. This is an eternal debt and it's drawn against me and against you and it is drawn against our personal account. All debts have at least one thing in common. All debts have a due date. And the due date for this debt has already been set. And a trial is going to take place in our future. The case will be tried in the court of heaven with me and you as the defendants. Creation and our own hearts as the witnesses, the heavenly host as the observers, and God himself as the final judge. The problem is this. You and I are bankrupt. We are bankrupt morally. We are bankrupt spiritually. We have no way of paying this debt. When I graduated from high school, I faced a decision about attending college. I took what's now called a gap year, and I traveled with a youth evangelism team throughout the state of Louisiana. And we did about 400 school assemblies that year and probably about seven or 800 gospel evangelistic concerts throughout that year. And I was interested in attending a very small private Christian college in the center of the state. But my family was a very lower middle class family. We didn't have any extra money. 
I can count on one hand and have still two fingers remaining regarding the number of vacations we ever took as a family. My dad was a hard worker. He had his own business. It was honest work. We always had clean clothes to wear. We always had good food to eat. Well, I didn't think I would be able to go the college I wanted to go to. And at the end of that summer, right before I started, I was in a church in South Louisiana, First Baptist Church Lafayette, and the pastor, had, he knew of my dilemma, and he encouraged me to apply for a loan that that church made available to people, to members of their church, to go to Christian universities and seminaries. And I said, uh, Dr. Sanders, I'm not a member of your church. I don't qualify for that. He said, Dennis, to my knowledge, no one has applied for the scholarship loan for the coming semester. Go ahead and apply for it. What do you have to lose? So he got me the application, and I filled it out, and I had to uh, provide the estimates of what it would cost me to go to school that semester and how much money I could afford and put toward it. And uh, they expedited the processing of the application and approved my application for the scholarship loan. They sent the money directly to the business office. I never saw a penny of it, but it went to help pay down my tuition and room and board and, and uh, books. I went through that process for three and a half years every semester. I never told my family or anyone else about it. I didn't tell them how I was paying to go to college. And when I graduated from college in December, I started seminary in January. And the way that the scholarship loan program had been established was as long as you were in education, the clock didn't start on paying back the loan. And once you finished your education, you had 10 years to pay the loan back at about a 3% interest rate unless you were in vocational ministry. And if you're in vocational ministry, you paid it back with no interest. I finished college, started seminary. I didn't need loans to go to seminary at the time. It had been heavily underwritten. And one day I went to check my post office box on campus. And I opened the box, and there was a letter from Dr. Perry Sanders, the pastor of First Baptist Church Lafayette. And I opened the letter and began to read it, and at first I got excited. It said something like this, Dear Dennis, congratulations on being the first recipient of our scholarship loan program to have paid back the loan. Now, there were thousands of dollars of debt that had accrued over my going to college. And it was a great letter. He said, it has been our honor to invest in your education. We pray God's richest blessings on you for the remainder of your ministry. May you always know the favor of God as you serve him faithfully. But there was a problem with the letter, and the problem was this. I hadn't paid one penny on that loan yet. Picked up the telephone, I called the church. I talked to the pastor, and I said, Brother Perry, there's been a mistake made. I haven't paid anything on that loan. The clock hadn't even started yet. I'd stayed enrolled in seminary, and I said, I'm... You know, once I finish seminary, I understand I've got 10 years to pay it back. He said, oh, no, the, the loan's been paid back, Dennis. And so I went to work, and this is what I found out. Somehow my dad had found out about that loan. Folks, we didn't have any money. 
somehow my dad had scrimped and saved and worked to accumulate the thousands of dollars on a debt that I owed. And he paid it back on my behalf, even though it was not a debt that belonged to him. If an earthly father can find a way to pay the debt that his child legitimately owes, how much more can a heavenly father out of love find a way to pay the eternal debt that his son or his daughter owes? Many of us need help paying our earthly debts right now. But all of us need help paying our eternal debt to God, and we all owe a debt to God. So what is your plan to pay back the debt that you owe to God? All the times he's protected you, all the times he's provided for you, all the times he's cared for you. Paul says, this is what happened when God sent Jesus to die for our sin. By his death, God cancels my debt. By his death, God cancels my debt. He nails it to the cross and he marks it paid in full. Nothing else can be required on this account. And that's God's response to my moral and spiritual bankruptcy. His response is the death of his only begotten son on my behalf. By Jesus' death, God conquers the evil forces. By Jesus' death, God cancels out my debt in his response to my sin. But there's a final response of God's sin in the text for this morning. Not only does the Bible describe sin as conflict and a debt, but the Bible also describes sin as bondage. Bondage. Sin is like chains binding our hands together. It wraps itself like a snake around our hearts. It infects our motives and our thoughts. It's like radioactivity that contaminates everything that it comes in contact with. It's like a poison that corrodes our relationships. It ensnares and enslaves us. Look again now at verse 13. Verse 15 is military language. Verse 14 is business language. Look at verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions, dead before God, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means you are outside of covenant relationship with God. Circumcision is a sign of covenant relationship. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, outside of covenant relationship to God, He, God, made you alive together with Him, Jesus. How? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 13 is theological language, is religious language. Notice how Paul says we were dead 
and yet we have now been made alive in Christ. We were outside of covenant relationship, and now God has brought us into covenant relationship with Jesus. And how has he done this? He has done this by forgiving us of our sin. God has broken my bondage to sin. He has purified me from the deadly poison. He has set me free. And he whom the Son sets free has been free indeed. This is God's response to my bondage. By Jesus' death, God frees me from bondage. Are you free this morning? I don't mean free politically. I mean, are you free in your soul? Are you haunted by shadows and secret closets of sin? Does shame follow you to bed each night and greet you when you awaken in the morning? Does fear stalk you like a destructive computer virus? Oh, how great the power of sin. It's conflict. It's bondage. It's debt. It's guilt. But what a greater God than sin. He has responded to my sin and to your sin. And at the cross of Calvary, my sin and God's love climax in the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus dies as my substitute shedding his blood, giving his sinless life, becoming my sin, becoming my Lamb of God who's offered on the altar of the cross of Calvary to atone for my sin. He is my escape, my salvation, my deliverance. By Jesus' death, God conquers the evil forces. He cancels my debt. And he frees me from bondage. When you look at the cross of Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a victim? Do you see your sin? Do you see the love of God? In his book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, Max Lucado tells a story that he and his wife learned while they were on the mission field in Brazil. It was the story of a single mom and her daughter, Maria and Christina. Maria had gotten married at a very young age, but that was part of the culture in which they were raised. And not long after they were married, Maria became pregnant with Christina. She gave birth to this beautiful little baby girl and life was good. They didn't have much, but they had deep happiness. And then Maria's husband became ill and died, leaving Maria, a young widow, with a young daughter to raise. Now, there were other suitors that lined up at the door and were very ready and willing to marry Maria. But Maria had purposed in her own heart that she was going to invest and devote the remainder of her life in raising this one daughter, Christina. 
And Maria made ends meet by just menial jobs, cleaning houses, doing odd jobs, doing whatever it took, taking her daughter with her along the way. And as the daughter grew and uh, became older and went through childhood and began to approach adolescence, they would have these mother-daughter conversations about life. And when Maria would listen to Christina tell of her aspirations and her dreams, she noticed that her daughter was always fascinated by the big city. She dreamt about the big city, and she imagined what it would be like to live in a fascinating place with all of the hustle and the bustle and all of the opportunities. And as it dawned on Maria that this was becoming serious with her daughter, Christina, one night after one of those conversations, she turned to her and she said, well, now, Christina, if you go to the big city someday, what are you going to do to eat? How are you going to take care of yourself? We don't know anybody in the big city. Well, Christina's idealism was still reigning at that point, and she didn't give much thought to that. And one night, middle of the night, Maria awakened and looked across the little dirt floor of their little red-tiled shack and saw that Christina had gotten up in the middle of the night and rolled up her little bed and had taken off. And Maria knew exactly what had happened. Christina could not resist the temptation any longer and she had taken off for the big city. Maria quickly got up and got ready and she put together all the little shekels that she had remaining. She went down to the local drugstore where the bus made its daily route. And while she, after she bought a ticket to take a bus ride to the big city, she went into a little, it was like a small closet. And she took some of the remaining change that she had, and she began to pop it into the machine. And as she would plunk it into the machine, after a moment or two, there would be a little mini explosion of light. Poof! And she would wait a few moments, and then out it would spit a little strip of paper that was still damp and would have three or four exposures of Maria's self she did that until she had used up just all of her money and she had these little strips of paper. The bus came and she got on the bus to go to the big city. And while she was riding on the bus of the big city, she found a little ballpoint pen half broken on the floor of the bus and she picked it up and while she was waiting to get to the big city, she began to write on the back of the strips of the picture. And then she took the pictures and began to tear them apart into individualized pieces of paper. She got to the big city and got off the bus, and then she began walking around in concentric circles, starting at the bus depot itself, asking people if they had seen a little girl that morning, a little girl. She was actually an adolescent about 17 years of age at this point. She would describe her daughter, and no one had seen anyone like that during the night. The circle got larger and larger as she looked for her daughter, seeking to find her, and 
It didn't matter where she went. There was no sign or trail of her missing daughter. Everywhere she went, she would take one of those little pictures and she would leave it behind. Find some conspicuous place to leave the picture with the hope that maybe her daughter might come across it. She was out of pictures and almost out of money. Just enough money left to now buy a ticket to go back home. And so after days of looking for her daughter with no result, she got back on the bus, broken-hearted and in tears, and went back to their little impoverished shack. The days turned into weeks until a month had passed and a second month. Every day wondering what had become of her daughter. One day about mid-morning, a 17-year-old girl comes out of a, an old room and begins to make her way down a wooden stair and gets at the landing and she really hasn't seen a mirror now in quite a while and she begins to look in the mirror and the beautiful hair that she had left home with now had become greasy and matted. Her beautiful complexion now had begun to show signs of disease. The beautiful dress that she had taken with her to wear in the big city now had become tattered rags. And the glimmer of life and light that had shone brilliantly through the pupils of her eyes now had been dimmed many weeks before. And as she looked in that mirror, Christina's heart went back to that home where she was raised by a loving mother. It now seemed like it was a century ago and a thousand miles away and that she would never be able to return again. She now understood why her mom asked her the question, what are you going to do when you go to the big city? And there in that brothel, as she looked at that mirror, she began to turn to walk away in despair and hopelessness. And then out of the corner of her eye, she looked and saw something tucked into the corner of the mirror, between the mirror and the frame itself. And as she saw that, she walked over to it and she gingerly picked it up and held it in her hands as though it was some type of rare treasure. Tears began to stream down her dirty cheeks, leaving furrows of clean skin. And she took that little picture and clasped it to her breast, never to let go of it again. But as she began to take it and clasp it to her breast, she noticed something had broken the emulsion on the front. And out of curiosity, she took it and flipped it over, and there on the back of that picture, she saw her mom's own handwriting. And there she read these words from her mom. Dear Christina, I love you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, all can be forgiven.
leaves. Come home. when we look at the cross of Jesus and we see our sin and God's love there written in crimson blood across the cross beam were stretched the arms of the only begotten Son of God. You can see these words, Dear John, Dear Jane, Dear Susan, dear Jim, I love you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, all can be forgiven. Please, come home. And this morning, God is inviting you Come home where you belong by faith and repentance. God has responded to our sin. He has done all that he can do. Now it is to us. What will you Come home. Come home. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed in just a moment, we're going to pray and then we're going to sing our final song. Your pastoral staff would do nothing more than to talk with you about how to have this kind of relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus came for you. Jesus lived a life without sin for you. Jesus went to the cross and was nailed to those cross beams for you. He shed his sinless blood for you. He was buried in a borrowed tomb for you. And he was raised victoriously by the Father to vindicate every claim he ever made. Raised for you. But you must now respond in faith and repentance. We're going to pray. If you've never opened up your life to Jesus Christ this morning, why not? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you're a member of Christ Community Church. I'm not asking if you're a good person. I'm asking, is the resurrected Christ living in your heart and soul? Do you know him by faith and repentance? You can today. And my friend, if you are a Christian, Are we sharing this amazing, miraculous story with others? Are we ourselves both demonstrating and articulating 
this amazing story of God's love. Our Father, thank you for what you've done for us. It is so undeserved, and it is amazingly miraculous. You have loved the unlovely. You have salvaged the unsalvageable. You have rescued the desperate. And your response to our sin has come at such a high cost. Thank you for sending Jesus, your Son and our Savior. For indeed, you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.